Welcome in, you knotheads. You've arrived in the nick of time. Once again, I am Nick Cormier here to discuss with you the goings-on in television, film, pop culture, current events, sports, what have you, and so on, so forth, etc. On this week's episode of The Knot Pod, we're going to go ahead and chat superhero movies. i got a back-to-back pair of movie reviews for you. We're going to go ahead and talk about Black Panther 2. Uh, the new film from Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, Wakanda Forever. And then we'll go ahead and talk about the new DC Extended Universe entry, Black Adam, starring, of course, The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. Uh, before we chat about my favorite television show going right now, and that is The Peripheral, the Amazon original streamer based on the William Gibson novel series. Uh, and finally, we'll chat about the season premiere, season two of the Mosquito Coast, starring Justin Thoreau on Apple TV+, Plus, uh, one of my uh, guilty pleasure television shows. So, two superhero movies and a pair of great television shows that are currently airing. You stay tuned and check it out. Thanks for tuning in, gang. All right, Nodheads, let's go ahead and talk about the newest entry into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That, of course, is one Black Panther 2, more formally known as Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Of course, this is the first installment of the Black Panther franchise that precedes the death of lead actor Chadwick Boseman, who uh, unfortunately died an untimely death due to cancer, which, of course... Uh, I understand all too well, having lost my father just about three years ago to the same deadly disease. Um, You know, uh, my heart was with the Bozeman family uh, and his wife uh, when when he passed, because I understand just how hard it is to deal with these issues. Um, And I really admired uh, and held in high esteem Chadwick Boseman for holding it all in and not uh, really letting it leak out. He he tried to battle it uh, without worrying the people around him or making his loved ones more concerned uh, than they already were uh, and didn't ever try to use that or abuse that for goodwill in the press. So, I mean, great on him. Chadwick Boseman, rest in peace. Um, I want to start out by saying that this movie did a very good job of tastefully... Um, Getting to the fact that King T'Challa was dead and that Chadwick Boseman was gone. Uh, There's a very nice Marvel intro uh, where they deal with, um, you know, the funeral for King T'Challa and a disease that Shuri believed could have been cured with the heart-shaped herb. But of course, they were to Killmonger, burning it all down. They didn't have access to it. And Shuri was a little late to be able to solve the issue for her brother. So they lost him in a, in a sad fashion. So they start out with a very beautiful introduction with the Marvel Studios thing. It's silent. They show all the scenes of Chadwick Boseman uh, and his time as the Black Panther. And before beginning on his funeral uh, and having a traditional Wakandan procession, uh, celebration of life. and mourning scene before they go ahead and they fast forward the plot uh one year later um interestingly nakia is not present for this funeral 
uh, which is a point of contention that'll come up later in the film. Um, but we see that a year later, Wakanda is under pressure from other countries. Uh, they're they're trying to get their resources, their natural resources, namely, uh, they're trying to get their hands on some vibranium, right? <clears throat> and it's very interesting because uh, they think that with King T'Challa gone, that they are suddenly weak. And so this brings me to the first of uh, my points about this film that I want to make is that Angela Bassett gives an amazing performance. I know there was some buzz prior to the film's release uh, that Angela Bassett might be getting some type of awards consideration, probably a supporting actress nod in, uh, in film from the Oscars this year. And I think it's very possible that she does get that consideration that was rumored uh, based on the performance that she gives in this film. There's a very emotional, touching scene later in the film uh, that we'll get to, and I'll bring this topic back up to a head. Uh, but we'll get there when we get there, because I want to go through and kind of spoil this plot bit by bit <clears throat> and go through every point that I had written down regarding the movie. So the CIA has a new vibranium detecting machine from a character that has yet to be introduced in the film. Um, spoiler alert, it's Riri Williams, who is, of course, Ironheart, uh, you know, the new super genius at MIT who stands to take on the mantle of Iron Man uh, now that Tony Stark has perished from this world. <clears throat> and um, so uh, the other countries are trying to get uh, the, the vibranium from what they believe to be a weakened Wakanda. Next thing you know, Namor... Uh, and the Atlanteans, or the people uh, that in this film are more like Mesoamerican, uh, and I'll make point of that later, we'll touch back on that. They show up to shut down the vibranium detection machine because it's running in the ocean, which is where they find some of the vibranium. <clears throat> and next thing you know, the Wakandans are being blamed for uh, the assault on the vibranium searching machine, and governments are even more mad at Wakanda Despite the serious infractions of them trying to impo <clears throat> impose their will, excuse me, upon Wakanda to force them to give up uh, their vibranium resources or at least share with the rest of the world. So Shuri and Okoye uh, use their CIA connection with uh, Everett Ross, played by Martin Freeman from the first film and from Civil War. Um, if you're familiar, great actor. Do love Martin Freeman every time I see him on the big screen. And the small screen, for that matter. Shout out Watson and Sherlock Holmes with Benedict Cumberbatch. But uh, they go to MIT to meet this Riri Williams. The Like I said, the future of Iron Man. Her name is, I believe, Ironheart in the comics or something like that. There's a new show coming out later featuring Riri Williams called Ironheart. So Disney obviously has big plans for her coming forward. Um, next thing you know, the FBI is on their tail. And then Namor's uh, Atlantean warriors are on them. So Shuri and Riri Williams get kidnapped by Namor's people, uh, and Okoye has to return back to Queen Ramonda uh, and and kind of explain the situation for her. So here's one of my major points, my bullet points for this film. This is when it gets powerful. Angela Bassett's performance is amazing. Okoye says, "I you know I pointed the tip of my spear." At my husband in the name of Wakanda. What have I not done for Wakanda? Ramonda is stripping her of a duty as general of the Wakandan armies and as a Dora Milaje. So 
it's very interesting because Okoye wants to plead her case and says, I've, you know, I pointed a spear at my husband's throat for this country. I've done anything that could possibly be asked of a person in my position. What more would you have me do? And that's when you get a very emotional breakdown from uh, Queen Ramonda, Ramonda. And she says, I ha everyone in my family is gone because she's, of course, lost her husband, King T'Chaka. She's now lost her son, King T'Challa. And, of course, with this capture of Shuri, who she did implore Okoye not to bring with her to MIT to search out this Riri Williams character, um, who's responsible for the vibranium-seeking device. She says, and now you've lost my daughter, so I have no one. And at this point, you know, I, I can't say anything other than the performance by Angela Bassett in this scene may be Academy Award winning and at least deserves a nomination. It's that brilliant. It really is very, very interesting. While we're on the subject of the MIT visit by Shuri and Okoye, there was a little bit of like pandering. I, I almost wanted to, some of the points in this movie, you know, Disney does just, just too much pandering anymore. And it's the Black Panther, but it might be the Black Pander. And here's why the Black Pander happens. Uh, you get into a situation where Okoye and Shuri are in a college dorm room at MIT speaking with Riri Williams. And, and then later the FBI chases them down inside of Riri's garage uh, where she's building all this like Iron Man prototype stuff and all this stuff that she's inventing, right? But Okoye says, you're going to have to worry about more than the popo outside. And it felt so forced. Because Okoye, you know, as, as worldly as she is, and they're obviously the Dormelage, they travel throughout the, the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know, they've hunted for the Winter Soldier. Uh, they've been to Korea, Busan and Korea in the first uh, Black Panther movie, Searching Out Claw. And they've obviously been many places. So they're very worldly. They're not, like, you know, contained within the kingdom of Wakanda. So it's not as though they wouldn't know uh, terminology like the police being referred in shorthand in slang terms as the popo, but so often does the character of Okoye seem like she's disheartened or disinterested in like the Western world and civilization and like, you know, calls them colonists or colonizers and things like that. And now suddenly she's using this shorthand language with Riri Williams to what sound cool so she says, you're going to have to worry about more than the popo. And I'm just like, that feels like pandering. Like heavy, heavy, heavy-handed pandering. Uh, the black pander, ladies and gentlemen. Black pander. No, it's like, I didn't I didn't need that. And that was genuinely upsetting to me. Uh, you know, and that only comes right before the, the tribunal scene where Okoye is given, uh, relieved of her general duties and her uh, Dora Milaje duties, mostly because they heard her say the Popo line, and they didn't want uh, to give her any more responsibility or credit. Um, no, of course that's not what happened. But So fast forward a little bit. We find out Nakia, the, hus the wife of King T'Challa, has been living in Haiti and doing outreach. Uh, so King Ramonda goes to her and says, can you please go and find my daughter inside of this Atlantean kingdom? What's the name of the actual kingdom? I got to look this up real fast. Uh, Talokan. Talokan is the name of the actual kingdom. It's not Atlantis. It's called Talokan. So Shuri's under there talking with Namor. They're getting to know each other. They're sharing information about their civilizations uh, of Wakanda, the kingdom of Wakanda and Talokan. 
and he's proposing a truce, um, saying they should attack the 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 land countries because they'll eventually try to conquer both of their kingdoms, which I mean does start to come true in this movie. You know, Everett Ross is trying to help out from the background, but apparently he used to be married to the director of the CIA, and that's Valentina Allegra de Fontaine, who, if you've seen her previously in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, she's appeared in things like uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Um, you know, she was uh, Yelena Bello, Yelena's handler, um, telling her to kill Clint Barton in the Hawkeye series. So she's like an evil kind of Nick Fury, it seems, in the background. Uh, and honestly, it does feel as though at this point, um, she's she is uh, trying to press issues that are giving like the new wave of heroes problems, which is why she has her husband arrested, Everett Ross, because she, she he was helping the Wakandans, uh, and she wants to be at odds with them to take their vibranium. Um, but anyway, so he's arrested, uh, for exchanging information with the Wakandans, and Allegra's doing her evil bit. Um, Shuri comes up with, uh, a remnant of the herb, the heart-shaped herb, and is able to finally gain, uh, Black Panther powers, and in a twist in this movie, a very welcome twist, we get a cameo by Michael B. Jordan, who plays, of course, Killmonger in the first movie, uh, and Shuri is furious that that's who she's seeing in her ancestral plane vision as she takes on the mantle of the new Black Panther because she wants to see her brother, of course, T'Challa, or her father, maybe her mother, but, like, certainly not Killmonger. Uh, but Michael B. Jordan's a welcome sight to have again in this film, even for a short couple of minutes, it's like a three, five-minute cameo in this movie. But it makes a lot of sense because Shuri is consumed right now with the idea of vengeance. She's, uh, you know, obviously after Nakia came and saved her and Riri from uh, the underworld kingdom of Talokan, uh, all she's got on her mind uh, is revenge, okay? Because Talokan strikes back. Uh, and, and of course, you know what? I skipped a major plot point. Let's get back to that. Before this vision quest on the ancestral plane where Killmonger is found by Shuri, her mother, Queen Ramonda, is drowned by Namor's forces. Namor's forces attack Wakanda in retaliation for stealing back Riri Williams and Shuri. Thanks, Nakia. And Nakia, sorry. Um, and in this moment, Shuri is completely overwhelmed and consumed by her rage. All she wants is revenge. All it is is... A cycle of vengeance. Her brother's been killed. Her father's been killed now. Her mother's been killed. She's the last of her family like that. Uh, and she wants revenge. And M'Baku, my one, my one of my favorite characters, if not my favorite character in this film series altogether, M'Baku says you should, you should sue for peace because we don't want to get caught in an endless cycle of vengeance if we kill the god of the Talokan kingdom. Because that's what he essentially is. Namor is like the feather serpent god, uh, according to the people of Talokan. Which is like an even higher esteem, of course, than the Black Panther receives in Wakanda. Uh, so, Shuri's not having that. Goes on her vision quest. Uh, sees Killmonger. Killmonger, not who she wants to see. But she is consumed by vengeance. Uh, and writing perceived wrongs. Uh, which aren't all perceived. Because, of course, her family's dead. So, 
you know, it does make a ton of sense that Killmonger is the person she sees on the ancestral plane. And I really did like that Michael B. Jordan cameo. He does a great job uh, stealing the scene once again. So uh, the the Dormelage and all of the Wakandan armies, uh, they re- relocate the, the city, the main cities of Wakanda up into the mountains of the Jabari uh, under the advisement of M'Baku. And they prepare for battle with, uh, you know, Shuri bestowing this armor, this angel armor to Okoye and to Anika uh, and Ao, you know, some of the Dora Milaje members, so that they can have more power for this fight that they're going to have with uh, the, the armies of Talokan. So the, the catch is they think that they figured out, now that, of course, she's Black Panther, so Shuri being Black Panther... Uh, having recreated the heart-shaped herb is a huge deal, bringing a lot of, uh, you know, a message to the Wakandan people that their savior and their protector is still around. Uh, and that gives them a lot of hope, despite there being a lot of gloom and doom in this movie, uh, in this cycle, as they're caught in this cycle of vengeance. Which Namor is as well, Namor's origin story being that people uh, from the land killed his people, and so he can't trust land dwellers, and he's been waiting for his uh, chance to get revenge on them ever since, and he's feeling spurned by Shuri and the Wakandan people for not seeing uh, that they could suffer the same fate ultimately if they don't join together and 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 try to take over before they catch up to the technological advances of their two civilizations. So, um, by the way, very visually impressive movie. They stole a lot of thunder from Avatar 2 that'll be coming out soon because a lot of this is filmed with underwater scenes and stuff that's like shot uh, you know, underwater, and it looks very beautiful. Like, it looks very, very visually and aesthetically pleasing, and that's something that should be that should be maintained, or rather, that should be mentioned uh, in this podcast review. So, they go to fight, and it's Namor getting lured to the shore and dried out by Shuri, because apparently that weakens him. Otherwise, there'd be no way for sure to get the upper hand. Namor can fly around with the the wings that he has on his ankles, and he's super strong. Uh, and he's a mutant, which is dropped in this dropped in this film by name. So we know that he's another person who has the the gene or the mutagen. He has whatever the mutants in this version of the Marvel Cinematic Universe have, uh, and he's one of them as well. Joining Miss Marvel and. Patrick Stewart's Professor Xavier from the Illuminati alternate universe uh, in Multiverse of Madness. But they fight on the beach, and Shuri gets impaled by a spear. And for a brief moment, you really do think that Shuri's going to die and that that's just going to be the end of the line of, you know, T'Challa, T'Chaka, Queen Ramonda, and Shuri, and that they're all just going to be dead by the end of this. And this irony is that this movie... It's called Wakanda Forever, and perhaps they'll be mentioned and named forever and remembered, uh, praised even. But the truth is that this family might be wiped out by the end of this movie. Instead, Shuri gets the upper hand, slams the more to the ground, puts the spear to his head, and sues for peace, saying that, you know, either we continue to hate each other and it causes us to take shitty actions, or... You can join with my kingdom and have an alliance. And if anybody comes for your kingdom or if anybody comes for my kingdom, then we'll have each other's back and kind of have this like little bit of like a NATO type thing going on where we defend each other against any any threats. So the movie ends 
with the the super piece. M'Baku is going to challenge uh, for the throne again after the first Black Panther. Uh, I think M'Baku would make a great king of Wakanda. Here's hoping that that's what happens. And then you get your mid-credits scene uh, where, of course, T'Challa's son, Twasant, uh, who's also named T'Challa in the Wakandan language, is revealed by Nakia uh, to Shuri as she's finally burning her brother's uh, funeral garbs as is tradition to let go after a year uh, from the victim's death in Wakanda. It's now when you let them go. Um, this movie was really tastefully done. Like, incredibly tastefully done. They didn't overuse images of Chadwick Boseman just in the beginning during the title credits. And then at the end, as Shuri burns the garbs and remembers the scenes that they shared together, of course, uh, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They did have a nice little quirky relationship. I didn't, I, you know, it's very subtle what they do in the first Black Panther and in Infinity War and stuff like that. Um, but, man, they really did. It does appear, you know, the actress who plays uh, Shuri, um, I can't remember her name off the top of my head, Letitia Wright, with all the controversy that surrounded her throughout the production and the filming of this movie, uh, she does a really good job convincing you and showing you passion and emotion that she really cared for her brother T'Challa so much. Uh, she's so upset when Killmonger shows his face in this movie uh, on the ancestral plane, and you believe that she's genuinely, uh, you know, emotionally messed up by the fact that that's who shows up uh, at that time of her need when she thinks she's going to get some resolution or closure from her family on the ancestral plane. They don't show up. She feels abandoned yet again, uh, and she's for forced to face the fact that Killmonger's right and that she's being consumed by vengeance in this moment, you know? Killmonger coming off is very wise in this scene. Um, this movie was very good. I would, I'm going to rate the movie now. I think I'm going to give it an 8.5 out of 10. I think I liked it uh, as far as the movies in 2022 that came out for Marvel. I think I liked it best, which is shocking. Uh, remind yourself that Spider-Man No Way Home came out in December of 2021 uh, and so is not qualifying on this list. The movies that, of course, have released this year are Multiverse of Madness, Thor Love and Thunder, and now um, Wakanda Forever Black Panther 2. Uh, I do think I like this slightly more than Thor and uh, a fair bit more than Multiverse of Madness because this is a cohesive film. Uh, there's not a lot of nitpicking to be had. It's a two-hour and 43-minute runtime. So, like, it's literally a very, very long film. But it doesn't feel like they unnecessarily fluffed it up. They didn't just air airmail it in and put a bunch of extra nonsensical scenes in it. Uh, it made a lot of sense. Uh, it was really a situation where... A lot of the people that came to play these roles did a great job. Lupita Nyong'o for, for her role as Nakia. Uh, Denai Gurira as Okoye did a great job. Obviously, Winston Duke, my favorite MVP as M'Baku. He did a wonderful job. I didn't love uh, Dominique Thorne as Riri Williams. And maybe that's going to be controversial. Uh, maybe people like her more than I did. I'm just being honest. I don't think that they got the right actor to play Ironheart or Riri Williams. Uh, she doesn't do an awful job. She just doesn't come off as overly charismatic. 
she doesn't seem like the greatest actor I've ever seen. Uh, that was the part of the movie that let me down the most. I was very excited for like the heir apparent to Iron Man in the form of Riri Williams. But I just came away thinking, man, they could have done a better job casting this role. Um, I didn't, I didn't, and I didn't appreciate what was the the Black Pander. You know, I don't, I didn't appreciate the pandering. There's even a scene at the end of the movie where one of the Dora Milaje like comes over to her lover, who's a woman, and it was like literally a brief three second scene. But like, it's like they had to force it in there just to show that like same sex love is okay, which I'm fine with. Same sex love, don't get it twisted. I was partially raised by two mothers, or rather, I went to high school and living in a house with my mother and her girlfriend for six years. So, like, you know, that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is, like, to force it at the end of this movie, just, like, just to interject it and be like, hey, inclusive, inclusivity, inclusion. Like, that's not, I can't stand that. I can't stand pandering. Uh, it's, for the life of me, the most frustrating thing in television and film, and it makes me sick to my stomach. But there wasn't a lot of that in this film, only a little bit, um, a minimal amount, which is better than a lot, obviously, being forced down my throat consistently or uh, in too much volume. This movie was very, very good, and it probably had no right to be as good as it was without Chadwick Boseman, but they took a lot of care to do a lot of things right. The soundtrack was absolutely amazing. Uh, the music, I believe it was uh, Ludwig Göransson who did the whole composition uh, and arranged all the music and, and the, the soundtrack for this stuff. All of it was great the entire time. It felt like I was uh, you know, in Wakanda. I was in that world. I was hearing stuff, and it was really, really well done. Uh, Cinematography-wise, it was visually stunning, aesthetically pleasing. I would tell you go out and see Wakanda Forever right now. It is the best the best Marvel film we've had since No Way Home. Now, it's not, I don't believe it's No Way Home good, but it's still very very good and and you should look forward to seeing it. Additionally, look out next week on the next pod, we're going to do a Marvel top 10 so you guys can get my personal top 10 Marvel films. Uh and enjoy. I'll let you know what I enjoy the most about the Marvel Cinematic Universe to this point. All right, Nodheads. Now it's time to talk about the new movie starring The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, a uh, personal favorite of mine. Uh, he is, anyway. And it's called Black Adam. It is the newest entry in the DC Extended Universe. Apparently the first film in Phase 1 of a new series of uh, things they're doing. They're going to be ignoring a lot of previous continuity and going forward uh, based on what they're doing here. I want to start by saying that I was a big fan of The Rock during the WWE, WWF early era, uh, the Attitude Era. I think a lot of people were. I think that I can claim safely that I was one of the first people that was really on board with The Rock. Um, even when he was more of a heel uh, he was obviously the people's champion. The nation of domination uh, is when he kind of came on. Rocky Maivia is how I knew him initially, but um, was a big fan of his. Had a lot of charisma. I could tell early on, and I can uh, I can say with some amount of shame that uh, earlier Nick in his developmental years, I'd say between the ages of eleven and thirteen, I really developed a lot of what I would say my personal flair, personal personality, personal personality. That's fucking retarded uh and yeah i can say retarded go ahead cancel me um 
that was one of the dumbest things I've ever actually said. Personal personality. A lot of my mannerisms and the way that I carry myself, the confidence with which I carry myself, the stuff that gets me on this microphone week after week, it comes from Dwayne The Rock Johnson and his time in the WWF, laying the smack down, all the catchphrases, just the swagger that he walked to the ring with. Guy was the Brahma Bull after all. And um, I'm not afraid to admit that because I think everybody has different things in their life developmentally that, that, that account for who they are as a person. And for me, The Rock, Dwayne Johnson was a big part of that. I remember going around Catholic school as a boy and I had his autobiography um, and I'd carry it around with me as if it was some form of Bible uh, that I could live or die by. Who knows how much of that story that he wrote was true. It was actually not written by him. It was like narrated by him and penned by someone else. But you get the gist of what I'm putting down if you smell what The Rock is cooking. All right, Knotheads, that's enough of that bullshit. Now on to the movie, Black Adam. Um, Really, really did enjoy the movie. So before we get into anything about what happened, the plot, whatnot, I want to say that I enjoyed the movie because there's a lot of divisiveness going around on this i even went into the movie thinking that i wasn't gonna like it i thought to myself i've read reviews saying it's very generic blase and i will say there are some things that hamper this film there's some pacing issues uh some writing issues there's like a point in the movie later where it feels like it's concluded and black adam is being uh placed away and then suddenly the movie continues onward when it looks like it might have ended there you know there there are some issues with the film uh, it's a tad long, it's a little over, it comes in a little bit over two hours long, and it feels a little lengthy at points, uh, but I will say this, um, I enjoyed the film, and I didn't expect to when I was walking in, so I'm really glad that I came out, uh, enjoying what I saw, um, undaunted by the fact that one of my childhood heroes is the main, the titular character in the film, Black Adam. So it starts in like 20, 24, 2500, like BC, and there's like this kingdom called Kandak, um, and there's this mis- mysterious element called Eternium uh, that can like be forged into a crown uh, that can summon the six demon kings. It's very, very strange, uh, big time mythos behind this, and they go out of their way a little bit early to, um, to let us know exactly what the deal is. There's a little bit of exposition to start. Uh, events before we come to the modern day conduct where uh there's an archaeologist who is a resistance fighter as well um and she's trying to locate the crown of sabak which is made of eternium which summons the lords of the six lords of hell uh with her brother and some and some helpers she obtains the crown and then uh ruthless gangs that have invaded conduct ambush them uh her one of her friends is killed uh, she reads an incantation, and then it awakens Teth Adam, uh, who is, of course, played by The Rock, who eventually will go on to be named in this film Black Adam. But, of course, of course, at first he's named Teth Adam. Um, uh, he appears to be Kondok's champion. Um, he has these lightning powers. He's basically like Superman with lightning, or think Shazam with more lightning. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, Waller, um, Amanda Waller, and you'll all know her from Suicide Squad, uh, and she spent, she did some appearances in the Batman, the Dawn of Justice, or the Justice League films, depending on what you've seen, uh, she shows up and says that, not in conduct, but she shows up in front of the, the Justice Society, which includes Hawkman, Cyclone, Adam Smasher, 
and Dr. Fate. A bunch of um, heroes that I'm not familiar with from the DC Extended Universe or from any DC property previous. Uh, but notably, Dr. Fate is played by Pierce Brosnan. Really steals the show in this movie. Pierce Brosnan is just a timeless treasure who continues to act well beyond his peers. And honestly, Dr. Fate was a huge reason I think this movie worked. But we'll get onto that more in a bit. So, the Justice Society, those four members I had mentioned, are tasked by Amanda Waller to go and bring in Black Adam, Teth Adam. Um, they arrive in time to stop him from causing more destruction, but then he starts to mop the floor with all of them. Um, it turns out that one of Adriana, the archaeologist who was searching for the crown of Sabak, one of her friends is actually the late, late, late ancestor, descendant of the king that Teth Adam fought back then because he was trying to create the crown of Sabak and some of the demon lords of hell and all that stuff. So... Ishmael um, threatens to kill Adriana's son, uh, Amon, I think is his name, Amon, Amon. Um, and so Teth Adam kills him incidentally, and that's what triggers him going to the underworld, where, like uh, the wizards, the Council of Wizards that choose Shazam, and these same powers were actually what we were given to, uh, were given to Black Adam, um, similar powers by the same Council of Wizards, uh, they the the six demon lords of hell give Ishmael uh, these powers that are similar to Shazam and to Black Adam, but they're like flame powers. So he's like a flame a hell a flaming hell demon, and he comes back. In the meantime, Black Adam feels bad for having killed um, Ishmael. We're not killed Ishmael, but hurt um, the son Ammon, Adriana's son Ammon, in the ensuing chaos. And so he decides to give his powers up. He says the magic word, which is Shazam of course, and agrees to be stored away in a secret underwater Task Force X black site in um, in the South Pole or the North Pole. Um, and then uh, the Justice Society leaves him there after he is no longer a threat. Now he's uh, in cryogenic slumber or suspended animation, what have you, right? So... Sabak summons the legions of hell. The Justice Society realize they can't stop him. So in his final moments, uh, Dr. Fate helps to unleash Teth Adam, uh, Black Adam, from his cryogenic sleep or his suspended animation. And he says the word Shazam, reforms into himself, and flies uh, off to the city of Kondok again to fight off against Ishmael, who is now this legionnaire, legion of hell commander. All the people are fighting against the Legion of Hell in the streets. They're throwing up diamond signs, which is like, you know, uh, a sign of rebellion in Kondok. Um, and, and, and of course, eventually, uh, Adam triumphs over Ishmael and the Lord of Hell, all the servants of Hell, uh, with the help of the Justice Society. And they leave and part on good terms. Now, in a post-credits scene... Amanda Waller sends a drone to talk to Black Adam and just lets him know if you don't want to be in prison in Antarctica, then that's fine, but you will be a prison in Kandak. So don't leave Kandak, because if you do, then I'll send somebody for you, and they won't be from Earth. Um, next thing you know, Black Adam destroys the drone, not threatened by it, and Superman, played by Henry Cavill, everybody's favorite Henry Cavill, formerly The Witcher. So sad, that news is. Um... Formerly of The Witcher, Henry Cavill shows up, 
reprising his role as the Man of Steel and telling Black Adam that they should talk. Now, I don't know if that's in a threatening way. Uh, Black Adam, the Rock, gives him kind of a smile, and they go and they go to the credits uh, at that point. But it's interesting for the future of the DCEU. It's exciting because it's letting you know that you know the Rock as Black Adam could be a big part of it. Superman obviously going to be a big part of it. I think a character like the Rock as Black Adam could really help this DCEU because, as we all know. Uh, Iron Man wasn't necessarily the biggest Avenger, um, comparative to other compatriots and counterparts, Uh, but Iron Man was the thing that set off the Marvel Cinematic Universe because of arguably the the charisma, the charismatic Robert Downey Jr. Uh, I think that, given the chance, The Rock uh, can provide some of that same charisma as Black Adam in this role to the DC Extended Universe. Uh, it's great that they got Henry Cavill back because he's always played a really good Superman. In my eye, I've enjoyed all of his appearances as Superman thus far. So I'm glad that they brought him back. That's a great decision. James Gunn is now running the DCEU. And after his great work on Peacemaker and The Suicide Squad, uh, not to, um, I think it's a great decision to have. Obviously, the Guardians of the Galaxy trilogy has been wonderful thus far. We're all waiting for that exhilarating third chapter and the exciting conclusion to the story of Peter Quill, Rocket Raccoon, Groot, uh, um, Gamora, um, and and all the characters, Drax, and all the characters in the Guardian series, Mantis. Um, So all, all around great news for DC Extended Universe. This movie was enjoyable. I'd give it a solid 7 out of 10. Uh... You know, I think that's where I would leave it. I liked it uh, a little bit more than I liked Multiverse of Madness. I liked it less or maybe the same as I liked Love and Thunder. Um, But I will say that I do think there's a lot of promise in The Rock being added as a Black Adam. There were some good comedic elements in this film that like, it feels like maybe got added later. Uh, some of the characters that were with Adriana, the archaeologists, were pretty funny. Um, and, and, uh, maybe Mohammed Amir was the name of the one. Yeah, yeah, the guy was name was, or no, that's the actor, Mohammed Amir. And he was playing Karim, which is Adriana's brother. Um, he was super funny the whole time. He came in and he was singing, like, all these rad 80s songs that I can't think of off the top of my head right now. But they were super funny when he was dropping them. Um... And I really enjoyed those comical moments. There were also moments when The Rock was funny. And, I mean, I can imagine um, a version of this film that wasn't as funny. And they were like, listen, we need a little bit more humor uh, in this. So, if you could, we'd appreciate some more jokes. So, but overall, it was really good. I'd say that my favorite DC films to date were The Suicide Squad, number one, not close. Then probably Wonder Woman. And now this one uh, is probably up there. It's, uh, you know, Aquaman was good too, but I, you know, wasn't a huge Aquaman fan. Um, and then, of course, Dawn of Justice was, was pretty terribly received. Uh, the Justice League was pretty good, but... Um, you know, I think the Snyder Cut was probably better than the original version. Um, but anyway, that's digressing too much. Black Adam is an entertaining romp and worth the price of admission. I would suggest checking it out, giving it a chance. 
Uh, Pierce Brosnan's as Dr. Fate was amazing in this film. The Rock as Black Adam was pretty good. I think that there's definitely room for that role to grow as well. Uh, and, and hopefully we get more of these characters because for the most part, really did enjoy everybody's performance in this one. Uh, it's, uh, it's a good time at the movies. All right, Knotheads, let's go ahead and talk about The Peripheral, the Amazon streaming show starring Chloe Grace Moretz, who you probably best know from the kick-ass films as Hit Girl, uh, you may know her from a couple of other pieces as well. Uh, highly underrated actress in Hollywood. She did do a Muppets movie to her shame, but let's not talk about that today. We're here to talk about episodes three and four of The Peripheral, which are entitled Haptic Drift and Jackpot, respectively. Now, most of you knotheads will realize that I don't usually talk about shows episode by episode. I'm not into doing the whole weekly review as a bit here on the Knot Pod, but there is one other exception, and that would be for Rick and Morty, because it's probably my favorite television show running right now. I say television show because I don't disrespect it, calling it a cartoon show, an anime, or anything like that. Of course it's not an anime, what the fuck's wrong with you? But what I mean to say is, The Peripheral may be the first original show since we've been running this podcast that I genuinely feel is going to take off and be worthy of having a week-to-week discussion about each individual episode. Now, should I turn that into a separate podcast with something similar on the channel, but under perhaps peripheral things like that? Maybe I talk about it outside of the main podcast. I'm not too sure how we're supposed to handle that just yet, but while we are here... Uh, and we're in the middle of the season and things are brewing, I think I'm just going to go ahead and roll it out here on the Knot Pod for all you Knotheads to hear about. Uh, so episode number three, Haptic Drift, starts off with a flashback scene. It's in 2015 of Corbell Pickett, played by Louis Hertham. That's the actor who plays the father of Dolores in the Westworld series. Obviously no stranger to Elisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan production. I'm sure they called him back uh, due to his excellent work uh, as the father of Dolores in Westworld. Uh, He did a great job in that role as uh, Peter Abernathy, I believe the name of the character was. Um, But he was unfortunately only in that first season. So we really didn't get to see enough out of Louis Hertham. But he's getting a, a lot of meat to dig his teeth into in the character of Corbell Pickett. So we flash back from 2032 in the main timeline to 2015. Corbell Pickett's got a bunch of what look like um, racist skinheads. Uh, they look like some kind of southern skinhead militia. They come to him for these cars with bulletproof windows and all these very interesting, uh, very specific specifications that they have for these cars. He guts him in the cars. He locks him in the cars, and it's a 102, 103-degree day. He intends to roast them alive inside of the car. Uh, so he's got his little nephew who's got the hose. and tells him to spray the car just to show him what they're going to be missing as they dehydrate to death. Uh, and he goes on talking about a military thing where the leaders of the enemy get together uh, and the military will drop a bomb on the location where the military leaders have all gathered because that's foolhardy on their part. They haven't spread out their resources enough. They call that a decapitation strike. So Corbell Pickett is here in the past showing to his nephew uh, he's a merciless man who will commit a decapitation strike. This comes back later in the episode because it is shown 
that not only has he killed these men inside of these cars by leaving them in there with no air, uh, letting the hot air kind of just murder them, but uh, additionally, uh, he does uh, put them up on crosses, uh, crucifixes rather, nails them to crucifixes, uh, and hangs them around town with bags over their heads. Uh, as if to show symbolically that Corbell Pickett is the man in charge of this town uh, and that no militia or gang otherwise is going to get any footing in his territory. So that's super interesting. Um, in the beginning of the episode, Corbell Pickett has been told to look out for the Fisher family, Flynn and Burton, that's of course Chloe Grace Moretz, and her older brother, played by Jack Raynor. Uh, he's doing an excellent job in this role as well. Uh, they, they've taken over the local... Uh, 3D printing shop that, that, that Flynn used to work at. They now own it due to the money that's coming in from the future. Since they're a part of the stub, a stub, of course, being an alternate timeline in the past that the future is accessing, but by virtue of having accessed it, uh, now isn't the true past, which is a very interesting concept. Uh, I look forward to them rolling out more of in the season. Um, as the episode goes on, we learn a little bit about Will uh, Netherton. He did kill somebody in the past. Uh, we learn that Corbell Pickett has been picking up interest in the Fisher family. So in the present, uh, Corbell Pickett and Burton uh, Fisher both have kind of a confrontation on the deck of a restaurant where they're talking uh, about interest in one another and what it's going to take to get interest off of the other. So, you know, Burton is offering Corbell money, $200,000 a week in VIG payments, uh, whereas you have Corbell who is asking, you know, how are you going to threaten me if you're not going to pay me off? Because you say you've got a threat and you've got a payment option, and I'm just wondering what the stick is, right? So next thing you know, due to the haptics that Burton Burton has, which of course are these implants, these military implants that connect all the soldiers with one another and make them able to see their field of vision together, feel what they're feeling together, um, has his sniper in waiting shoot through Corbell Pickett's glass just to show him what the stick is. Uh, and threatens him saying the next one goes through your head. So Corbell Pickett at that point, of course, accepts the $200,000 in weekly payments uh, and we move forward. Um, back in the future, uh, Flynn is flirting with Wilf Netherton as the, one of the bots, um, the robots in the future seems to realize uh, that, that she doesn't belong there. Uh, and so they put on an act which kind of ends in a little bit of romantic flair between the two, which is interesting. It'll be interesting to see where that goes. Um, but we obviously don't know exactly where that's headed at this point. Uh, then we come back to our main, we have our main villain in the series who seems to be uh, this woman named Sharice Newland. Uh, she's the head of the Research Institute. Uh, it appears one of three factions within the peripheral. And she is interrogating a friend of Alita West, the mysterious woman uh, who contacts, reaches out, and uh, pays for the services of Flynn and Burton initially. Uh, in the premiere episode, who's gone missing ever since that that premiere episode, Tough Tussle in the Tunnel, uh, with um, with what would be Sharice Newland's uh, main right hand man. Um, so she's she is uh, it looks like interrogating one of the friends of Alita West and tells her that you know the tea you just drank has wasp pheromones in it and all these bees. That I've been growing in this bee garden 
are now going to come into this room and attack and kill you because you helped your friend Alita West break into the Research Institute, right? Which is the premise of the premiere episode. Um, so we get an idea that Sharice Newland is a cold, calculated, incredibly intelligent, but obviously equally ruthless antagonist character, which makes me like her all the more. Great acting job on her part. I guess the actress' name is Tanya Miller or Tania. How do you pronounce this? It's tough to say. It's T apostrophe N-I-A. Honestly, there can't be any help for me. I don't know how to say this. She just went to a school for acting called Guildford. She got that clearly very finished, polished uh, English, British uh, acting tutelage under her belt. So, of course, she's a great actress. Anyway, kills Alita West's friend uh, with the bees. Uh, then we fast forward to the nephew of Corbell Pickett delivering the payment from the Fisher family of $200,000 uh, and wondering what that's about. The uncle flips it around on him and says, why don't you spy on the Fishers for me? Figure out where this money's coming in from so we can figure out exactly who might be interested in our services to kill them. Finally, the episode ends where Wilf and Flynn are continuing to look into the whereabouts of Alita West. They arrive at the place where Snow last fell, which is, of course, a riddle on Alita's part. It's like a poet named Snow had uh, died in his old house. So they go to his house and they find the laboratory where Alita had uh, looked at Flynn Fisher's uh, peripheral and had the, uh, the optical nerve switched out with her friends, so they would have access to the Research Institute. Uh, and there, Sharice Newland's right-hand man shows up, and they do battle. I believe his name is Jasper. Uh, no, I can't be right. That's not right. It's Leon, or maybe it's Connor. Ah, oh, there's so many characters in this show. I tell you, it's a tough time sometimes. Maybe Ocean. Oh, what is his name? I don't know. It's the right-hand man of the main antagonist, uh, Sharice Newland. So they do battle. Uh, Wilf and Flynn and a robot and the right-hand man. Finally, the robot uh, is slain until the right-hand man starts to spill the beans. And as soon as that happens, Cerise orders the robot to kill the right-hand man so as to not divulge any of her secrets or plotting or mechanizations. All right, so that's episode three of The Peripheral uh, entitled Haptic Drift. Then you get episode four of The Peripheral, and it is absolutely um, amazing in a word, uh, completely stunning, uh, a great hour of television. Um, it is everything that you want an episode to be. So the beginning shows Wilf and Alita as young boys and girls getting taken in uh, by this team who look like they're trying to get on track after the jackpot, the jackpot, which is the name of the episode, and will be explained by the end of the episode. Then you get Wilf and uh, the Handler Man, who I believe, uh, who is the Handler Man? The man who is um, responsible for sending Wilf on all of his missions. I believe his name is Lev. It's Lev, uh, Lev Zubov. And Lev is telling, you know, Wilf that he needs to maintain neutrality, not get too attached to this Flynn Fisher character. Uh, even if you're falling for her, we got things to do. Um Okay, so that's in 2099 all this is happening. Back in the past, in 2032, inside of the stub, uh, Flynn, her eye is suddenly getting blackened as she argues with Burton Fisher over going through her room and her personal belongings uh, and stuff like that. And uh, next thing you know, she's having a seizure on the ground. Flynn is having a seizure. Burton's obviously very concerned for her. They decide to go to the hospital and seek medical attention. 
So she's having the seizure on the floor. And and in the future, we flash back. We get a scene with the right-hand man uh, who Dr. Newland is now putting into a new robot body. So, like, trying to recreate him into a robot. Uh, obviously, he's gone, but kind of, like, recreating his conscious onto this future robot. A lot of Westworld themes here. Don't forget that Lisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan are the executive producers on this show. So, uh, at the end of the day, they do have a heavy hand in this, probably taking a lot of what they learned from Westworld uh, in this show. Brief aside and tangent, let's talk about Westworld Season 5 getting canceled. There is no fifth season. Season 4 will service as the finale of that show. Totally disappointing, uh, but also pretty warranted after a lackluster storytelling Season uh, 3 and Season 4 not really bringing it all the way back around to where it needed to be. Uh, it's clear that at the end of the last couple of episodes of season four, there were rewrites that were meant to draw to the conclusion of the series because they were pretty sure with David Zaslav or Zaslav, the stupid motherfucker taking over the HBO Max side of streaming, uh, thanks to his stupid Discovery acquisition bullshit, that now they weren't going to get to finish the story the way they wanted to, so they had to uh, acquiesce to the situation. But uh, R.I.P. Westworld, great show, died before its time, really went off the rails too soon. I love season one, season two was very good, uh, they rearranged season two because we had guessed a bunch of it already, so that was unfortunate, um, otherwise season two would have been even better, but season three, very lackluster, uh, very unfortunate, and then season four, unable to deal with the fact that they weren't going to get the runway that they needed to finish the series out. Honestly, it would have been nicer if they had let him know ahead of time. Then maybe season four could have been at least 12 or 13 episodes and close the entire series appropriately. But what are you going to do? So back to the peripheral, you've got Flynn who had the seizure and her black eye was happening. She's her, her eyes feeling better. Her seizures are gone, but now she has to go see the wife of the man that she has a, uh, a crush on the sheriff of the town. Um, and she's telling her that, you know, it looks like you're having, uh, grand mal seizures, but of course other symptoms of grand mal aren't present. So it can't be that, uh, I'd like to let, let me know who is in, who is responsible for making the VR machine that you're going into right now. Whoever's making that, I need to be in contact with that company in case they have further issues with their technology and stuff like that. So Burton has decided he's going to go in using the uh, VR headset in place of Flynn since she's having the seizures. Uh, then we flash forward to 2099 where Lev and uh, Dr. Newland, Sharice Newland, are having a conversation. Now, this is where it gets a little tricky, but I love scenes like this in a show, and here's why. Because what we have here is a little bit of exposition. And that's what's great about a show or a scene like this in a show. You have Dr. Newland, the antagonist, and then you have Lev, who we are pretty sure is at least partially antagonistic. Uh, and they have uh, what is called a quick review, right? And they go over um, the house with three walls. So this is great exposition. The Klept, K-L-E-P-T, is an oligarchy, and through extreme violence, they brought order from the chaos of the jackpot. The jackpot we're going to find out about by the end of this episode and this podcast, so stick around. So, uh, as long as they maintain the order, they get to chase profit as much as they want, the klept, right? Then you have the Met Police, uh, who keep the klept from going too far past the boundaries, right? So they kind of police the borders, make sure that gets taken care of. Then you have the Research Institute, which of course, uh, the Sharice Newland, Dr. Newland is the head of, 
and they get to profit from the peace that is maintained by the Met Police and the Klept Oligarchy. So all of these three institutions are in uh, simpatico with one another so that they can survive after the jackpot is done and thrive in this 2099 society, right? Uh, So she's threatening Lev, saying that they have a device in the Research Institute by which any amount of DNA will eradicate an entire lineage, an entire family line, all generations that are living uh, within any, any time period. So if Lev fucks around and finds out She'll take this teacup that she just stole from Lev, input his DNA, uh, and potentially wipe out all family that Lev has, all DNA that exists in this 2099 timeline uh, immediately. And she's already shown Sharice Newland has that she's a cold, calculating, manipulative, uh, incredibly smart woman who plays by tough rules. So, you know, it's very much uh, insinuated that that that. Lev is going to have to be under the thumb of Sharice or else face persecution for him and all his family. So then we flash to Wilf and uh, Flynn having an exchange in Will and, and Flynn is just in her VR headset experiencing memories of her life as a child back in North Carolina. And it seems like a little bit of a, an intrusion on Wilf's part, but she, he couldn't get a hold of Flynn through any other means because she's obviously not entering the peripheral right now with her seizure situation. Um, so he's talking to her about uh, the updates and what's going on regarding the search for Alita West and what's going on in the peripheral and the, snu- the stub, what have you. Next thing you know, Burton and, or I'm sorry, Lev and Wilf are having a conversation uh, and it's about the fact that his family is getting murdered in the stub. Uh, next thing you know, Lev uh, reveals that he's the actual one who's perpetrating the murder of his family in the stub just so that they don't have to to face anything, any hardships undue in the stub. He's saying that they like to uh, test. They're going to now try to create new stubs so they can do pharmaceutical tests, things that are very expensive to test on populations and things like that because these stubs are really just like fragments of the past. And because they essentially don't matter towards the future, they exist in the past and not in the future, they can't affect the future apparently, uh, that's actually a very good selling point for why one might do scientific or pharmaceutical or medical, any types of testing, anything you want to test really, you can test in these stubs because they're like little fragments of the past that won't affect the future by virtue of the fact that they've been visited by the future. So they're like alternate timelines that kind of diverge from the main timeline. So looking back, uh, you go back to the past again. We're in 2032. Um, and finally, Flynn is deciding to go back into the peripheral, but she wants to test some things. She does stuff how she does in a normal sim. So she explores the boundaries. In a sim, she goes in and she's willing to die and die and die over and over again to kind of test these ideas. Kind of like when you play a video game. You go through trial and error. You try multiple different things to see kind of how things can go, how far you can push things, what the limits are. And that's what she's now going to do in her time in the peripheral as she visits this 2099 timeline in the future, right? So she's going in there time and time again, and she's like, she is determined to figure out what the story is behind 2099 and if what's going on in their future, what happens between in the resulting 67 years difference between the two timelines. And sure enough, that is finally what we get. And we get to the title of the episode and what is a big, big part 
a big part of this entire show. And that's called the jackpot. That's what they call it. So it wasn't one thing. It was a lot of things. And they weren't happening all at once. They happened uh, spread out. But it was accumulation building up over time of all the things. uh, To the point where the future, they haven't even technically decided when it began, right? They haven't even gone to the point of, like, this is what happened and why it happened. They just know the events that led up to what is effectively the end of the world. Now, they call it the jackpot. It's a little less apocalyptic. Uh, but they decided, Wilf and company, that the moral right to know this information, uh, Flynn has that. So they go ahead and they begin to describe for her all of what the jackpot is. So they go through bit by bit with these giant monoliths. So visually it's really stunning because they have these giant, uh, like, square. There's this giant cube, this giant sphere, uh, this giant diamond, like, or hedron-shaped uh, item. And they tell you what is going on in each individual one. So the first one uh, where the jackpot became unstoppable was in 2039. It was a hack of the North American electrical grid. So it's North America's entire electrical grid going out, a complete blackout. And it goes on for months across the entire continent, right? And it apparently was happening increasingly beginning in 2039. So the first blackout comes and then... There are many years of blackout to come after that because the attacks keep coming, the blackouts keep coming. Then after that, there's the pandemic in 2042. Uh, they call it a filovirus, which I think is like a blood plague, or a blood virus, bloodborne virus. Um, it attacked all the organs in the body uh, with blood bursting out of things like the liver and the abdomen. That was in 2041, just a couple of years after the the continental plagues. Uh, and then finally, there was uh, droughts, famine, antibiotic failure, agricultural collapse, you know, uh, full population collapse. About uh, 7 billion people or so died in the resulting collapse. So we're talking we had 8 billion people on the planet uh, and then 7 billion people suddenly died. Finally, they called the final event uh, a nuclear strike. Uh, apparently that took place in North Carolina in the same town that Flynn and the Fisher family and Corbell Pickett are all from. It was a domestic terror attack. Uh, a nuclear missile silo blew up in Spring Creek, North Carolina. Uh, and that was the, the, the literal end of modern society as they knew it. So I imagine there were like a billion people left. They don't explicitly state how many people survived after this nuclear blast went off. Uh, but you can imagine it was less than one billion at that point due to the nuclear fallout and stuff across America. So less than a billion people left surviving on the planet. That is the jackpot. What a wonderful name for an apocalyptic scenario. Um, honestly, that's one of the best things going in the show right now. Now that we have some explanation of what happens between nineteen or the twenty thirty two. And the 2099 segments of time in this show, there's a lot more to look forward to. There's a lot more hanging in the balance. Uh, Will Flynn be able to change her future? Will the Fishers try to do so? How does Corbell Pickett fit into the situation? Uh, How does does, uh, Lev coming back and killing his family affect things, if at all? Is the stub really a meaningless portion of time cut off from the future? Uh, If so... Can Flynn do anything in the future while she's in the peripheral to alter the past? Because uh, some, sometimes, you know, if you subscribe to really odd scientific stuff, 
the future can actually affect the past, which is strange to say, uh, maybe even stranger to hear for all you listeners. But if you list dive, deep dive into science fiction theory and stuff like that, you can get into quantum physics where uh, Spooky Effect says that even the future can affect the past. Uh, so that'll be interesting to explore. All I know is, on the Not Pod here, we're going to go ahead and investigate this show on a week-to-week basis going forward. It's too good not to do a little peripheral segment uh, every week, and then maybe next season I'll do something different regarding how I handle this show in review in case people don't really care for it. Maybe they don't want to hear about it in the main pod. I don't know. But the peripheral is worth your time, and I hope you are checking it out. If you haven't, it's on Amazon. Check it out now. All right, Knotheads, we're going to go ahead and chat now about the Season 2 premiere of the Apple Plus television show, The Mosquito Coast, starring Justin Thoreau, uh, adapting a work based on a novel by his uncle, the one Paul Thoreau. Um, very interesting series. going to go ahead and try my best to do a brief catch-up of what happened on the first season. Uh, Justin Thoreau plays Ali Fox, the... Patriarch of the Fox family, wife Margot Fox, children Dina Fox and Charlie Fox. Um, and they are living off the grid in America, okay? So the wife and, and and Allie himself with their two children are living off the grid. They don't have cell phones. They're homeschooled outside of the education system. Uh, they've incurred some debt and are faced with eviction when Margot decides to reach out to her very wealthy parents. Uh, to help with their financial woes, which, of course, leads to the family being found and tracked down by government agents and uh, starts them running. Uh, once again, they're on the lam. Uh, I don't know if on the lam means on the run or it just means, like, hiding, in hiding. So I don't know if I'm using that phrase correctly, but you get my gist. Uh, they stop hiding and they've started to run again because their hiding is no longer going to be sufficient given the circumstances that have now changed things with Margot reaching out to the parents for a little bit of an income boost. Um, throughout the series, the family heads down into Mexico. Uh, they go up against some cartel members looking for a group called Calaca, but it turns out that maybe Calaca has been infiltrated as well, and they can't necessarily trust them. Uh, they get caught up with the Mexican drug cartel, the parent and lin- the parent the parent uh parentage the lineage of the children gets called into question whether Dina and Charlie are truly Allie and Margot's children and we never really do find out in this first season what is causing uh them to run by the end of the season the family is a little bit more together than they are in during the series there's moments when Dina and Charlie are a little bit distant from their parents, Margot and Allie, because they're unsure of why they're running. Uh, and due to this dishonesty and not being completely informed about the situation uh, regarding their lifestyle, their reclusive lifestyle off the grid, the, the, the children aren't very trusting of their parents. Um, so, of course, the father, you know, gets them away, escapes them out of Mexico, escapes the government agents that are, are after them, and in doing so, sets up for season two. They're now on a boat heading up a river. We're not entirely sure where, what freshwater river they might be in. If they're if they're off the ocean, off the coast, if they've actually made it to the Mosquito Coast. Where is the Mosquito Coast? These are questions that aren't necessarily answered just yet. So now you've caught up, and we can talk about 
the first episode of season two that just premiered this evening on Apple TV+. Plus. Um, it's a very good episode. It's the type of episode that really makes a television series like this one uh, where they do a bit of exposition. So what you have is uh, an episode where Margot and Allie's past is brought to the forefront, okay? Margot and Allie are uh, doing a little, we're doing a little time jump back into the past, and in this time jump back to the past, we learn that Margot and Allie weren't necessarily happily together uh, before this all jumped off. It looks like they've been separated, or they're at least considering separation. Um, they both still see the children, uh, but Allie, who is a genius, kind of a inventor hacker, he's a genius inventor, right? And he's invented this proprietary software that the NSA is interested in in relation to data mining, trafficking, uh, and kind of being able to spy on the population. may sound familiar to anybody who's been paying attention to the United States over the past two decades, uh, but it has a lot. It has a very Snowden-esque feel to it where, well, in this case, Snowden kind of aired it out, though he wasn't responsible for the software that was created. Uh, that's doing such a great job of track tracking the American people. Um, it is clear that Justin Throw's character, Allie, uh, doesn't actually agree with the NSA's potential usage of this software. So he's discussing pitching this software, uh, his invention to a, an unknown customer. Uh, it turns out his partner is actually trying to shop them to the NSA. He's very unhappy about it. You know, comes by to the wife's house where the wife has a new boyfriend. Uh, you know, picks up the young version of their children uh, to take for a daddy day. Um, and goes back to doing his work while he has them watched. Meanwhile, mom is, you know, busy with her boyfriend. But it looks like they're doing like a, a kind of an environmental, an enviro-terrorism thing. So the boyfriend and the mom uh, are interested in uh, striking back at corporate's corporations uh they're damaging and harming the environment the which we all live in and so they're kind of uh heroic um in that sense uh but interestingly enough uh of course justin throw Allie's character doesn't trust the boyfriend so uses the same software that's already been uh taken by the nsa against his consent put and put into practice using nsa methodology he goes ahead and backdoors into their system using a rootkit access that he didn't formally disclose. The NSA was completely aware of, unaware of, rather. And he goes and does some research on the boyfriend of his wife, Margot. Well, it turns out that the NSA has a full profile on this man. They've been tracking him. They're aware of his eco-terrorism. Uh, and they're closely monitoring him on a regular basis. So now Allie's become aware of this, knowing that his wife Margot has been fully put into danger by dating this man and uh, helping as his accomplice in their eco-terrorism schemes. He goes ahead and he burns down uh, Salted Earth, the entire program that he had created that the NSA is now abusing, in hopes that they might not be able to abuse his creation um, even after they bring him in uh, and they threaten him and let him know, listen, you know, we even had the man who invented airplanes watch us drop bombs uh, on countries in World War II. And you know what he could do about it? Jack shit, because that's right. Once the government owns 
whatever invention you've created, there's an entire division uh, that is dedicated actually to anybody who invents something interesting. The the government can kind of take take and seize hold of that, uh, almost like an eminent domain policy, but for ideas. Uh, it's a real thing. You can look it up yourself if you don't believe me. Feel free to check it out. And that's what is in part makes this series incredibly interesting. At least it's what piques my interest because it does, uh, as a little bit of a side note, we're going to go off on a tangent here, but it does go ahead and comment about government overreach uh, and just how far oversight takes it too far in many cases. Uh, and this is one of those cases where obviously the government has overreached and invaded the privacy of its citizens, despite them being eco-terrorists, by what any definition of the government would be. Uh, This is an exact case of that. And um, obviously, when you use somebody's airplanes uh, in order to drop bombs on countries, they might not appreciate that you've taken uh, their, their, their invention of the airplane and abused it in such a manner. But again, that's a digression. So Justin Thoreau's character, Allie Fox, uh, goes in to the NSA, basically gives him a giant middle finger, says, I'm a jealous uh, father, I'm a jealous ex-husband who's just doing a little research using your backdoor program there at the NSA to see if there's any dirt on my uh, wife's new boyfriend, which to the NSA director and the interrogator seems uh, is seemingly innocuous enough. It makes sense. It lines up. But as soon as he leaves, he burns down, as I said, Salted Earth, the program, uh, goes through the back door, makes sure the NSA has no more access to this, goes home, fries a bunch of hard drives inside of his microwave, and immediately goes out in search of Margot, recognizing that tonight was, in fact, the night that she looked, it appeared as though she had planned to do some eco-terrorism. So we cut to Margot and her boyfriend who are at the facility uh, the, that they've chosen to terrorize. They're planting a bomb. It's a biotech firm that they're doing. So they're working with gene therapies and things like that, working to, and uh, who knows what they're actually doing, but we can assume that their purposes are nefarious for the purpose of this television show. Uh, and Margot and her boyfriend go ahead and plant a bomb. As they're driving away from the facility, uh, they notice that one of the workers is headed into the facility. So... They are theoretically going to be caught in the blast. Now, Margot's boyfriend says, we don't have enough time to stop this. We can't turn around. So Margot hops out of the van after punching him in the face as he tries to stop her from exiting the van. She sprints back to the premises, just missing the woman as she reenters the building, goes around to the side where there's a window only to pound on the glass before an explosion kills this woman and takes out the biotech firm uh, floor where all this testing was happening, all these uh, vials and specimens, lab specimens, takes them all out uh, and watches the woman that she tried to prevent uh, from dying just go up in flames. So Justin throws uh, Allie Fox arrives on the scene, uh, grabs Margot. She implores him, please go get the kids, get away. This isn't something I can walk away from. Whatever you've done, you can obviously walk it back, but I cannot walk this back. This is it for me. Uh, and of course, Ali Fox's heroic father uh, role in the show, he says to his ex-wife um, and the mother of his two children, the kids need both of us. So she takes his hand and they begin their escape. Presumably, the onus for the entire show and why they're on the run from the government is that he deleted his uh, patented technology, his invention, his software from the NSA uh, so that they could no longer use it to spy on people. 
And she, of course, uh, committed a heinous act of terrorism against the biotechnology firm. And so, thus, we have the entire onus of the Mosquito Coast. What's interesting most about this episode is that in the first season, the children are given the idea that it's all dad's fault. That it's dad's fault they're running, it's dad's fault they're leaving, uh, and at the end of the day, that it's Justin Theroux's Ali Cox character, who is truly the villain of the family, costing them the ability to live on the grid. It's all it's all Allie's fault. But what we've learned in this episode is that might not necessarily be true because as Margot says to him, uh, as she sits shell-shocked at the thought that she just blew up a woman during her uh, act of terrorism against the biotech firm, uh, what's interesting is she says, you can walk whatever you've done back, which is true because Allie would be able to rebuild any program that he stole from the NSA uh, any of his proprietary technology could obviously be given back to them, and forgiveness could be had for the sake of having Ali agree with the NSA and work for them instead of against them. But that's unfortunately not what he believes. So instead, he's choosing to take his wife and get away from the situation, and that is how we got to the first season of the Mosquito Coast. This is a great premiere episode, the type of episode that really reinvigorates why I wanted to watch this show. Uh, there's like the political espionage side of it. There's like the no trusting big brother. There's the, you know, kind of revolutionary idea that there's like against eco, you know, the, the destruction of our uh, ecosystem, of our environment, environmental terrorist might have been a better way to say this the whole time. Uh, but what I'm getting at is these characters are compelling, and this is a story that is compelling. If you have any idea how the world really works uh, and the means that we might take to fight back against oppression. Uh, so if you haven't checked out The Mosquito Coast, Season 2 just started on Apple+, Plus, and I'm a big fan of week-to-week television watching, as you all know. I do love me a good binge now and again as well. But check out the first season of The Mosquito Coast. You can binge that whole thing. Seven episodes long. Second season is going to be 10 episodes, so a little bit longer, thankfully. Give it a little more tooth, a little more hair. Uh, but check that out on Apple TV+. Plus. It's good stuff.